Parshat Chai Sara, and we're going to look at an um, often overlooked uh, little vignette, an episode uh, which begins Perik Chofhei 25. Um, it discusses, it's the little piece before the record of Avraham Avinu dying. He died at the age of 175. Uh, we know that the, at the beginning of the parasha, the discussion is about the death of Sarah, etc., etc., and then we get to this little piece here. Vayosef Avraham, Vayikach Isha, Ushma Keturah. And Abraham took another wife, and her name was Keturah. Vateled lo, et Zimran, vet Yakshan, vet Medan, vet Midian. She bore him, she had children with him, and gives all the names to Psukim, of names of children and grandchildren. And then it says, Vayiten Abraham et kol asherlo liyitzchak. And Abraham gave everything that he possessed to Isaac. Velivnei hapilagshim, and to the sons of his concubines, Natan Abraham matanot, Abraham gave gifts. Vayishalachem me'al yitzchak, and he sent them away from Yitzchak beno, his son Yitzchak, his son Isaac. Ba'odenu chai, while he, Abraham, was still alive, Kedma sent them to the, in the easterly direction, El Eretz Kedem, to the land of the east. Now, the automatic assumption here, I'm not, I'm not even going into getting married again, the automatic assumption here is that because the first part of what I just read discussed Keturah and her children, that what we're talking about in verse number six is Keturah and her children. Okay, so those children were not Yitzchak. Yitzchak has a special status. Everything that Abraham has once he dies is going to go to Yitzchak. His legacy, his identity, everything about him is going to belong to Yitzchak. But there are other children. We know there are other children because we just heard about Keturah. By the way, no mention of Yishmael here which is an interesting thing. But the Livnei HaPilagshim, to the children of the Pilagshim, of the concubines, he gave Matanot gifts and he sends them somewhere to the east, to the far east. Okay? Who are the Pilagshim? So that's the first question we need to ask ourselves. There's no mention of Abraham's concubines here. It says, Vayosef Avraham Vayikach Isha. doesn't say that he took a Pilegesh. What's the difference between an Ishan and a Pilegesh? It's a different status of wife, and we don't have that today. It's a different status of wife. Your wife is your wife. There are um, mutual obligations between a man and a wife, and particularly on the part of a man, his relationship with a wife is totally different than the one he has with a concubine. What's a concubine? So it would appear that in ancient times, and I'm not totally familiar with all the rules and regulations of concubines, that people um, had concubine wives with whom they had children, but were not considered primary wives and didn't have the same social status as a wife. I don't know exactly what that means, but what you have here in this little episode is a little bit of a, you call it in Hebrew, a stira, a contradiction. At the beginning, he marries a wife, Aikach Avraham Isha, and her name was Keturah. Then it says at the end, Velivnei Pilagshim, 
and the children of the concubines. Another problem, no mention of multiple concubines. We only have a record of one wife that he married in this particular episode. Her name was Keturah. So who are the concubines in the plural? Even if you're going to assume that Keturah is a concubine, who are the other concubines? Are they not mentioned? Or are they mentioned? Is it Hagar? Who are we talking about? So these are some of the little questions that immediately leap out of the text if you're looking, uh, you know, if you're going through it with a fine tooth comb, if you're trying to work out exactly what the text means. What we do know here, the information that we can draw to, out of the text, the important information is that Abraham married a wife with whom he had several children and quite a number of grandchildren, and that um, his main legacy, his main inheritance, he gave to Isaac, but he didn't abandon those children. He gave them something and dispatched them to the Far East. That's what we can draw uh, out of this, uh, this episode. Look at source number two. If you look at source number two, you will see that Rashi, and by the way, as is always the case with Rashi, he's quoting a medrash, Rashi immediately identifies Keturah in a, a rather surprising manner. Keturah, says Rashi, Zohagar. Who was Keturah? It was Hagar. One second, what was Hagar's name? Hagar. Hagar, right? So why is she called Keturah? So the Medrash actually gives two reasons. I've only quoted one here. Um, and Rashi brings both, and if you look at the Medrash, it's quite expanded there. She was named Keturah because her deeds were as beautiful, as sweet, as Keturet incense. That's the Medrash in Bereshit Rabbah. Her name was Hagar, but her nickname, the name that Abraham gave her because she was such a wonderful woman, was... Keturah, where, what's the root of the word Keturah? Keturet, incense, we know that word because we talk about it in Vayikra when, when the Mishkan is built and we know that in the Beit HaMikdash we used to burn incense. Incense is a very pleasant smelling, um, um, I guess, herbs and spices, whatever it is that they put together and they would burn it and it created a wonderful aroma. Keturah is Hagar because she was such a wonderful woman. Okay, that's what Rashi says, quoting the Medrash. Does it make a lot of sense? Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It, may, it perhaps makes sense because we don't want to think of Avraham Avinu as getting married multiple times. Okay, that may be an uncomfortable thought. Um, particularly now that we've learned that Sarah died. Oh, you know, I know Sarah was a wonderful woman and I cried over her. I gave a marvelous hesped. And we buried her in the Maras HaMachpelah. Now I'm bored and lonely. I'm 137 year old, 37 years old. I want to get married again. Who should I marry? Ah, oh, here's Keturah. Let me marry her. That sounds a little bit superficial and flippant. So it would make sense that the Midrash tries to um, present us with a version of the narrative that doesn't sound so flippant, that doesn't sound so superficial, Keturah is in fact Hagar, and he either was still married to her or he remarried her, and he had many more children with her than just Yishmael. So perhaps that's the context. I'm not, I mean, Rashi doesn't say this. I'm suggesting 
that the idea that Hagar is the same as Keturah is because we just want to identify Abraham Avinu as somebody who was just married to the women that we knew he was married to and not somehow see him being married to another woman at this very late stage in his life. Actually, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What I've just said is a quasi-explanation of Rashi, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. But before we even look at that, I'd like to just read to you something from the Chomatanach. The Chomatanach is a perush written in the last 20 years of his life by the Chida. Chaim Yitzchak David Azulai. He died in 1804, I think he was around 80 years old. But in the latter part of the 18th century, he was without any doubt one of the most famous rabbis in the Jewish world. Besides for the fact that he was an extremely great scholar and a Kabbalist, he originated in Eretz Yisrael. He must have been a fantastic speaker, extremely charismatic, and somebody who, anybody who knew anything about the study of Torah, of Torah scholarship, would immediately recognize as a great scholar. But how many people would have known him had he remained in Eretz Yisrael? Very few, because it was a tiny community. There were perhaps you know, a couple of hundred, three, four hundred families, Jewish families, <coughs> living at that stage in Eretz Yisrael. But he was a collector. He was a Meshulach. In those days, they called them Shedarim. He would go around the world, the Jewish world, collecting money for the community in Eretz Yisrael. Eventually, he settled in Livorno, Leghorn, in Italy, and became the rabbi there, or a rabbi there. And he wrote multiple Sepharim. How do I know that he was one of the most famous, well-known rabbis in the late part of the 18th century? Because he wrote a travel log, a diary of all the different communities that he visited during his period as a collector for the land of Israel. He went everywhere in the Jewish world and he recorded his impressions of all the different communities he visited, including all the many rabbis that he met along the way with whom he corresponded and continued to correspond even after he settled in Livorno. So the Chida, the last 20 years of his life, were slightly more settled because he lived in Livorno. And he wrote this parish called Chomat Anach. Not a lot of people know it, um, but uh, those who do, aficionados of Torah commentary would refer to the Chomat Anach. He's, he was a fabulous scholar. And what was great about him was is that he drew from every single type of Jewish scholarship and commentary that there was, that there existed. He wasn't limited, because he, he wasn't only a Kabbalist or only a rationalist or only this or only that, he was everything. And in this particular situation, um, I think he must have been struck by the fact that identifying Keturah with Hagar is a little bit problematic. So he wanted to add a little bit of firepower to Rashi's explanation. And he quotes a Rishon a medieval rabbi um, who came up with what's known as a gematria. Do you know what a gematria is? <coughs> a gematria is when you can associate two things through their identical numerical value. So each Hebrew letter has a numerical value. Aleph is one, base is two, gimel is three, tough is 400, sheen is 300, etc., all the way through. And if you then count up the value of each letter in a particular word or group of words and find something which has an identical numerical value 
another collection of Hebrew words or Hebrew word, that somehow that association is considered significant. He comes up with this association. Isha Ushema Keturah. A wife and her name was Keturah. That's what the Hebrew expression in the Torah, right? It's the very first pasuk that we read from chapter 25. Isha Ushema Keturah. Begimatria has the same numerical value. Zu hi Hagar Hamitzrit. This is Hagar the Egyptian. So we have a numerical association between the pasuk that mentions the wife whose name was Keturah and Hagar the Egyptian. They are both, if you, I'm not going to go through the entire calculation right now, the gematria of Ishao Shema Keturah is 977 and the gematria of Zuhi Hagar Hamitzrit is 977. The problem is that it isn't. It's not 977 because there's a hay there and the hay makes it 982. So you need to take out the hay in order for the gematria to work. And the chidah must have noticed this because he's the one that puts the hay in the parentheses. And therefore we have a not quite aligned gematria uh, and the numerical association isn't perfect. But you can see that the chidah, quoting Rabbeinu Ephraim, from his manuscript commentary, is trying to underpin, to find a way of supporting Rashi and the Midrash that identifies Hagar as being identical with Keturah. Okay? <laughs> now we're going to go to the alternative view. I've, I've put here the Ibn Ezra and the Rashbam. There are others. The Ibn Ezra says Keturah cannot be Hagar, as in verse 6 it refers to Abraham's concubines, in the plural, how many concubines are mentioned in the Torah? Well, we know that there is a mention of a concubine called Hagar. And there's also now a mention of another concubine called Keturah. In which case, there's only two concubines that we are aware of who had children with Avraham Avinu. How can it say concubines in the plural if Hagar and Keturah are the same person? Sarah wasn't a concubine. In which case, there must have been at least two, because plural is two or more. So Keturah and Hagar were both concubines, which means, says Ibn Ezra, that it cannot be that Hagar and Keturah were the same person. Okay, that's his argument against Rashi and the Midrash. The Rashbam also addresses this problem. By the way, the Rashbam was Rashi's grandson. And very often he takes issue with Rashi because Rashi is presented to us, perhaps presents himself to us, as the perfect explanation of everything that's written in the Torah to give us a helping hand in understanding some of the more difficult aspects of whatever the Torah is teaching us or telling us, right? What's written in the Torah. Says the Rashbam, but when you jump to a Midrash that doesn't actually help us, but just creates more complications, it's not helpful. And therefore, he often takes issue with Rashi's use of Midrashim as the method by which we are understanding the text of the Torah. And he corrects Rashi, in a sense, by saying, actually, there is a better way of understanding this, which is more rational and more basic and sticks closer to the actual meaning of the words in the text. Is Hagar Keturah? Rashi said yes. Rashbam says no. Why not? Because, says the Rashbam, 
According to the plain meaning of the text, this woman is not Hagar. How do we know that? Because it says, Vayikach Isha, what's her name? The Torah tells us, Ushma Keturah. What was her name? Was her name Hagar? No, it was Keturah. What would the Torah say if her name was Hagar? Her name was Hagar, and she was also known as Keturah. But that's not what the text says. The text says her name was Keturah. In addition to which, we have this other problem that was identified by the Ibn Ezra, which is that Pilagshim is in the plural. So we have here this debate between Rashi, and the Chidah quotes Rabbeinu Ephraim, and there are others in that camp who say that Keturah and Hagar were one and the same, and they're basing themselves on a Midrash, which is a Chazal, who must have had their reasons and the, uh, uh, you know, who had a tradition that the Keturah name was just a moniker, but in fact, it's a reference to Hagar. And then you have others who disagree with the Midrash. The Midrash is entitled to have its version, because as we know, Drush isn't Pshat, but Pshat has to be Pshat. What is Pshat? Pshat is, what does it tell us? It tells us her name was Keturah, is there any mention of Hagar? Nothing, not a mention, not a word. In which case, it's not Hagar, it's Keturah. Why does the Midrash call her Hagar? I don't know, ask whoever composed the Midrash, that's not my problem. I'm reading the text, says Ibn Ezra. I want to know the plain meaning of the words, says the Rashbam. It's Keturah, not Hagar. Let's look at Shadal. We've mentioned Shadal in the past. Shmuel David Lutzato, a distant relative of the Ramchal. He lived roughly 100 years later, a little bit less. He was a, basically a 19th century Italian scholar, brilliant, brilliant Torah scholar, uh, lived in the age of Maskilim, of the enlightened, um, you know, period, but didn't necessarily adapt himself to that way of thinking, although he was able to communicate with Maskilim. He was clean-shaven, and he wrote a parish on the Chumash, um, which, uh, which you can buy and you can find online, um, but which is obviously not widely used in the uh, more traditional Jewish world. But I use it regularly because he often quotes from different places, puts things together, collates information, and has um, very often a unique take on particular episodes. I want to read to you the Shadal um, on this particular episode, this mention of another wife who was married by Avraham Avinu called Keturah. Says Shadal. Look, it's number five in the source sheet. Now, Yosef Avraham. En safek shahaya zezman harbe kodem lachen. So the first problem that he addresses is one which I alluded to earlier, which is it all sounds rather unbecoming that Avraham Avinu, at the age of 137 or more, after his wife had died, who he'd been married to for decades, suddenly feels lonely and feels the need to get married and have more children. The whole thing sounds a little bit odd. Says Shadal, you're getting the wrong end of the stick. This didn't happen now. This is not something that happened after Sarah died. It happened many, many years before. It didn't happen after the death of Sarah. 
We know that the Torah is not necessarily written in chronological order. That's very important to remember. It's a mistake that people make. The Torah is not written in chronological order. The narratives of the story don't necessarily have to follow each other. So why is this written here um, after the death of Sarah? It's mentioned because... After talking about all the different narratives that occurred to Avraham Avinu that were important for us to know, and before his death, there's another piece of information, a piece of the puzzle that the Torah wants to inform us about. This is not necessarily relevant or directly relevant to the origins of the children of Israel, of the Jewish nation. And all the stories about Abraham Avinu, somehow um, they are with reference to the, uh, the foundation narrative of the Jewish people. This is a little bit of a side story. It's, you know, it's marginal. And therefore it's now mentioned at the end. It's the last piece of information before we record Abraham Avinu's death. And it's only written to inform us Ki Hashem berachet Abraham beribui hazerah. Because the Torah wants to inform us that Abraham had many descendants. Why is that important? Remember that God promised Avraham Avinu, why am I changing your name? Because you're going to be an Av Hamon Goyim. You're going to be the father of many nations. Had we only heard that he was the father of Isaac and Yishmael, how many nations is that? Two. Is that many nations? Is he an Av Hamon Goyim? If you just had Isaac and Yishmael, not really. That's it. So in order to deliver the information about the promise that God made and that it somehow had come to fulfillment during the course of Abraham Avinu's life, the Torah just added this in like a sort of parenthetical thing. By the way, Abraham Avinu also married another wife called Keturah with whom he had many children and grandchildren, all of whom, if you look at the names, were the foundation uh, individuals for individual nations. So he was an Av Hamon Goyim. Ki milvad Yisrael umot acherot yatzu because besides for the nation of Israel, and he doesn't mention it, and Yishmael, many other nations emanated from Avraham Avinu. And that's why the, elsewhere in the Torah, um, the, all the different children and grandchildren, descendants of Yishmael are also enumerated and mentioned by name. So that the Torah is um, informing us that the blessing that was given to Avraham Avinu was fulfilled in his lifetime. We shouldn't somehow think that this was overlooked and it was a mistake. Now, this is an interesting question, which we've also alluded to. There is a discrepancy in the text. The initial part of the text says he married a wife, an Isha. The latter part of the text talks about the Pilagshim, the concubines. Says Shadal, don't be confused. The fact is that Keturah was considered a Pilegesh. Kilamata, 
because as we see in, in Pasuk Vav, who Omer Avraham, the children of the of the concubines that Abraham had. And the only two Pilagshim or wives other than Sarah that we find in the Torah are Keturah and Hagar. So the plural of Keturah, of concubines are these two. And similarly, we see in Chronicles, in the first book of Chronicles, that uh, the Bnei Keturah are referred to, and she is identified as the concubine of Abraham. So um, clearly, Shadal is agreeing with Ibn Ezra and Rashbam that um, Keturah is not Hagar, and that she is a Pilegesh. And the important point about this episode is that, first of all, he married her many years earlier, in the lifetime of Sarah. And the reason it's mentioned here is just to tell you, it's got nothing to do with the narrative of the children of Israel, of the Jewish people, but so that we know that the prophecy or the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham was actually fulfilled. Okay? We're now going to look at the Ramban, which is number six. Um, It's on page two. Of your, of your source sheet. So now, I, I translated the Ramban, um, which is a fascinating Ramban. So this is on Pasuk Vav. Says the Ramban, the Pasuk says, and the children, for the children of the concubines that Abraham had had, remember he gave them gifts. He, they weren't part of his inheritance. He didn't include them in his last will and testament, but he gave them generous gifts and dispatched them to the Far East. Okay? Says the Ramban, the plain meaning of the text is that Keturah is referred to as one of the concubines. Again, it's, he is agreeing, not with Rashi, although he doesn't say it explicitly. You'll see and um, a little bit later on it becomes very clear. He agrees with Ibn Ezra, and he agrees with the Rashbam that the text uh, of this particular episode about Keturah cannot possibly mean that she is Hagar. She is one of the concubines in the plural because it was said to Abraham by God, your named offspring will come through Isaac. Ki zara. That's what the Pasuk says. How will you be known? How are you going to be identified, Abraham Abinu? Who is, who is going to be the one of your children with whom you are most identified through their descendants? Isaac. Okay, i.e. not any other offspring. So you may have many other children, but the one that's going to be most identified with you is Isaac. And he therefore considered all his other wives as concubines. All his other wives... Um, I just want to hear to see how all his other wives. The implication here, interestingly, is from the language of the Ramban that maybe he did even have more wives, but whose names we don't know. We certainly know he had a wife called Hagar, and we certainly know that his wife Hagar had a son called Ishmael. We know he had a wife called Keturah, and it would appear from the way Ramban expresses himself that Keturah was not Hagar with whom he had a number of children and grandchildren, etc. 
and it is even possible that he had other wives whose names are not mentioned, the important point is that all of those wives were considered by him to be concubines, not necessarily because that's the way he married them, but in essence because his legacy would only be continued through Isaac, they have a secondary status in terms of the way that legacy is presented by the Torah and possibly by the way he understood it himself. Continues the Ramban, for Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, was his concubine, but Keturah was taken as a full-fledged wife. How do we know that? I said it before, because the Pasuk says, For if she would have been a maidservant in his house and he then took her as a concubine, the Torah would not have said, and he took a wife whose name was Keturah. So Keturah was married, for all intents and purposes, on the level of a wife. That's how he related to her during his lifetime. But in terms of his legacy, in the terms of the way she is to be understood by us, looking back, historically, she's a concubine. And yet, says the Ramban, despite this, she's called a concubine by the Torah for the reason I mentioned. In other words, because her children were not on the status of Kivi Yitzchaki Karel Chazara. Okay? And um, in 1 Chronicles, in the first book of Chronicles, it is written the same thing he mentions as Shadal, uh, so by the time it got to Chronicles, Chronicles was written hundreds of years later, at that stage, it's no longer mentioned the fact that she was the Isha of Abraham, because she's not. She's no longer alive. Abraham is not alive. It's not relevant. What is relevant is how she's referred to historically, says the Ramban. Historically, she's never going to be referred to as Isha, even though that's the way he married her. He's all, she's always going to be referred to as Pilegesh. So the word Pilagshim in that Pasuk is a reference to her and Hagar and possibly other concubines or other wives that Abraham Avinu married who aren't recorded. Their names are not recorded in the Torah. It's not important. The main point is, as we said earlier, that he was Avhamon Goyim. He had many descendants, many nations emanated from Abraham Avinu. But the only one that's important for our, our purposes is who? Yitzchak. Everybody else is not important. Why do we mention Yishmael? Only because there's a relevance to Yishmael in the story with Sarah. Why do we mention Esav in the next generation? Only because there's a relevance because of Yaakov Avinu. Right? Do we mention all of um, Yaakov Avinu's children? We don't know. Do we? We know the 12 tribes are mentioned. Did he have more daughters besides Vadina? Possibly. We have no idea. Do we, know, um, do we know all the children of every single person who's mentioned in the Bible? Not necessarily, unless they're mentioned. And you see that every time something is mentioned in the Torah, there's a purpose for it. Why were the Bnei Yishmael mentioned? Not because we have any interest in knowing the Bnei Yishmael, but because there is this concept that... Avraham Avinu is Avhamon Goyim, and we need to know that there were many descendants of Avraham Avinu besides for Isaac. Okay, now we're going to look at the Nitivot Shalom, which is a beautiful piece, a remarkable piece, and he addresses, a, uh, he addresses this entire episode from quite a different angle. He looks at it from a Kabbalistic perspective, 
And um, he's going to come up with a concept which I think has powerful lessons for us in terms of understanding what um, good is, what evil is, and how people who think, who think they are good can not necessarily be good. Okay? So the concept of goodness, of positivity, of doing the right thing, people may think they're doing the right thing and not actually be doing the right thing. Let's have a look at uh, Niti Vodshalom. I didn't translate this, but I will translate it as I go along. And those of you listening online can download it. Um, it's, uh, it's a link on the website. Hine parashazut una biur. Says the Niti Vodshalom, this entire episode, this little, I mean, it's not long, it's only six pesukim, requires explanation. The first and biggest question is, Really? Why did Abraham Avinu need to get married again? What, what was the necessity for it? Abraham Avinu been told very explicitly, who are your children going to be? Who's the important one? Isaac. Had he had Isaac? Yeah. I mean, how old was Isaac when Sarah died? 37 years old, right? Yeah. And he was going to get married to Rivka. He's going to have children. And they're going to have children. So does Avram Avinu really need to get married again? Once he's had Yitzchak, he doesn't need to get married again. It doesn't, by the way, matter if he got married before Sarah died or after Sarah died. The point is, once he had Yitzchak, Isaac is going to be your legacy. Everything is about Isaac. So what's the point of getting married again? And we see, particularly... That later on it says, what happened to the children of these concubines? He gave them gifts and he dispatched them, he sent them away from Yitzchak. And the, uh, um, the translator, Yonatan ben Uziel, translates the words as follows. What does that mean? Any of you here speak uh, Aramaic? Not too well, okay. Do you know what it means? It means he divorced them from Isaac. In other words, it was an enforced separation. It was a deliberate separation. He did not want Yitzchak to be contaminated by any association with the children of the concubines. Really? Then why have them? Don't have children. No one's forcing you. What do you have them for? The Imlibasov Gershama, if in the end he divorced them, he sent them away, he banished them. That's what the word Gershama means in this context. He banished those children. Why did he need to get married and have those children in the first place? Why go through the bother of getting married and having children if in the end of it you're just going to banish them and you're never going to see them again? That's the first point. Uvamidrash Ita. And now he quotes a famous Medrash. <coughs> I've actually changed this slightly from the original text of the Nitivot Shalom. Um, I've actually put the full Midrash. He offers a little explanation of the Midrash, but I will explain it as I'm going along. So the Midrash quotes our Pasuk, Yosef Avraham Vaikahi Shash Makatura. And Abraham once again married a wife, and her name was Kutura, Kativ, and he quotes the very first Pasuk in Tehilim. The Midrash says, what's the first pasuk in Tehillim? Ashrei ha'ish asher lo halach ba'atzat reshaim, uvederech ha'taim lo amad, uvamashav le'tzim lo yashav. Happy is the man 
who does not stand in a place where he gets advice from the wicked. Okay? He doesn't go. Sorry. He doesn't go along with the advice of the wicked. And doesn't stand in the place of sinners, in the way of sinners. And doesn't sit in a uh, gathering of scoffers, of, you know, negative um, um, comedians, people who make fun of everything. That's what the Pasuk says. Who's the Pasuk talking about? Ashrei Ha'ish. Who's the man? Guess what the Midrash says? Avraham Avinu. The very first Pasuk in Tehillim is a description of Abraham Avinu. What happened, if you recall in Parshat Noach, there was a generation called the Dor HaFlaga, which tried to build a tower that reached the sky because they wanted to challenge God. And they called everybody together and they wanted everyone to participate in this tower building project. And that included Abraham Avinu, he lived at that time. But he didn't join that generation. Lo halach he didn't stand in a place where there were sinners. He had nothing to do with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham Avinu. And he didn't settle or sit or dwell in a place of scoffers. What's that? Remember the king offered, he said, you can live in this land. You can stay here. You can uh, inhabit our land. He didn't stay there. Avraham Avinu kept away. says the Nitivot Shalom, and in exactly this way, This he continues to go along this theme with the very with the first pasuk, the second pasuk, the third pasuk of this chapter, the very first chapter of Psalms. And he continues all the way through Ad, the, um, the third pasuk, where it says the end of the third pasuk, asher and everything he did he was successful at. What is that talking about? Still talking about Avraham Avinu? Eile, elu b'nei keturah. It's talking about the children of Keturah. Shenemar, by Yosef Avraham, that he married again, and he married a wife, her name was Keturah. The Medrash says, how do we know he was matzliach, he was successful, because he married Keturah and had children with them, and those children of Keturah were his great success. V'hainu, what does it mean? Shezu that this was the greatest achievement of Avraham, the pinnacle of his success, the highest achievement that Avraham Avinu ever had. It's mentioned in Tehillim. What does the Pasuk said? Say, everything he did, he was successful. Avraham Avinu had children with Keturah. Really? Makes no sense. Doesn't really make any sense. Particularly with this aspect of his life, of having children with Keturah, that's his a greatest accomplishment. Why was Zimran, who was one of the children he had with Keturah, called Zimran? Because he was a singer. Who did he sing for? He always sang in praise and in honor of Avodah Zarah. That's why he had that name. Really? This is Avraham Avinu's greatest achievement that he had a son who was a singer for idol worship. 
יקשן שהיה מקישים בתוף לעבוד הזרה. And here we have another, a musician who used to play his musical instrument in honor of the Avod HaZara, and that's why he was called Yakshan. Really? The son of Avram Avinu was an Avod HaZara worshipper? And that's considered by the Medrash to be his greatest Hatzlacha? How does that make any sense? These people were, were completely in love, were besotted with idol worship. That can, can't be considered Abraham's greatest accomplishment. What, how can that be considered? That these, the children of Keturah, his greatest accomplishment, his greatest achievement. It doesn't make any sense. And now we need to look as well and dissect the verse. He took a wife. Her name was Keturah. What would be the way in classical Hebrew of saying a person got married? You don't say that means you, you took a woman, right? It's not personal. Ishak has two meanings in Hebrew. It means woman. It also means wife, right? Eshet Avraham. That's how you would refer to the wife as Eshet. But if Isha just comes on its own, what does the word mean? Woman, it doesn't mean wife. What does it say in the Pasuk? It says, Vayikach Isha. He took a woman. Ushmakatura. Why doesn't it say Vayikach Lo Isha? He took for himself an Isha. And that would change the meaning of the word from woman to wife. What does it say when he married Sarah? Vayikach Avraham Benachor. Lahem Nashim. The word Lahem. The possessive word, lahem, to them, he's talking about him and his brother, means that he, they got married to those women. But when that word is missing, when the law or lahem is missing, it doesn't mean that they got married, it simply means that they took. So why is that word missing? By the way, with chaser yud, the word pilagshim is missing a yud. Why is it initially call her a wife and later on call her a concubine? We know that it's a reference to Keturah. So what, how is it that in the beginning she's referred to as a wife and later on she's referred to as a concubine? She was clearly a concubine, not a wife. So why, why even call her a wife or make some kind of hinted reference to the fact that she was an Isha? And we saw, and the Ramban quoted it, and Shadal quoted it. What does it say in Chronicles? Okay, so we need to explain, says the Netivot Shalom, we need to explain this contradiction between Isha and Pilagshim. We need to understand why the word law is not in there. We need to understand all the other things that he's raised in order to make some sense of this episode. And by the way, we need to get to the bottom of this whole story of him getting married again. Let's look at what the, in the last 10-15 minutes that we have, let's look at what the Nitivot Shalom comes up with. A beautiful interpretation, a Kabbalistic insight into this entire story. There's a, a Sefer, a commentary on the Torah by the name of Sifte Kohen. 
Um, it's not the Shach. The Shach is a parish on the Shulchan Aruch. This is a book that was written by a great Kabbalist um, in the 17th century, maybe 16th. His name was Rab Mordechai HaKohen, and he wrote a Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah. It's called Siftei Kohen. And the Nitivot Shalom quotes him and says as follows, He explains this entire episode in the following manner, why it is that Abraham married Keturah. One of the great challenges of human existence is that we are not perfect. Obviously present company excluded, None of us are perfect. We're not perfect. And there's, you know, in the course of educating our children, we clearly put our best foot forward, or at least try, but there are occasions when there are sides of us to which our children are exposed that are not paradigms of perfection. I know it's hard to believe, but that's the case. How did Avraham Avinu deal with this? Who's going to be the one who inherits the mantle of monotheistic leadership, of being the prophet of monotheism in the world? Isaac. Can Isaac be imperfect? No, he has to be utterly perfect. In fact, we know of all the Avot, he is the most perfect. He's the only one who can be offered up, as it were, at the Akedah. He never left Eretz Israel. he did not, not come from Chutz Aretz, and he never left to go out to Chutz Aretz. He is somehow a, an example of perfection uh, in the story of the patriarchs. How did Avraham Avinu achieve that? Do you know how he achieved that? Because he had other children with whom he shared, perhaps, says the Nesivot Shalom, quoting the Sifte Kohen, aspects of his personality which were not perfect. Somehow that's where they went. And what he did with Yitzchak was perfection. You know, have you ever seen that, by the way? People have children, yeah. and the different children reflect different aspects of their personality. One child will be a reflection of a particular um, facet of the parent. It could be the mother or the father, the parent's personality. And another child will be completely different, but you'll recognize the parents also in that child because the way they speak, the way they walk, the type of the reactions that they have, somehow they're a reflection of that aspect of their parents' personality. Avraham Avinu did it deliberately. He didn't leave a thing like that to chance. Everything good that he had within him, he threw at Yitzchak. But what did he do with all the other aspects of his personality? Not a problem. He had a whole bunch of other children. And that there was the side of Avraham Avinu that wasn't the Yitzchak part, that was the other part. That's what he did with them. But it was deliberate. Why? Because he knew, if all I have is Yitzchak, then Yitzchak's going to see every part of me. And he's going to be a reflection, not just of the part that I want him to be a reflection of, but of some other part of me that I don't want him to be a reflection of. So he got married again, had other children, had another side to his personality which he shared with them, and somehow that was the family dynamic when it came to that relationship or those relationships. But his relationship with Yitzchak remained sacred 
and important because he knew his legacy was through Yitzchak Avinu. Isn't it an unbelievable idea? The Katav al Zeb Be'er Moshe. And the Be'er Moshe writes about that. Sha'af Shezaya Gam Inyan. Um, that was the, one of the reasons as well why he needed to have Yishmael. Why Sarah wanted him to get married to Hagar and have a child. So somehow that side of him would go to Yishmael. So now we have to have an explanation as to why it is that he got married to Keturah and to Hagar. Why wasn't it just enough for him to have Hagar and Yishmael. Why get married to Keturah and have a whole bunch of other children? He had his Yishmael and he's got his Yitzchak and he put everything that he didn't want Yitzchak to have in Yishmael and he put everything he wanted Yitzchak to have in Yitzchak. But he married twice, Keturah and Hagar. You see that Nitivot Shalom is not falling for the Midrash. He's, say, he's saying that it's like, it's like two wives and many children. So what's, what's going on here? So he says that there was two sides to Avram Avinu. What's side number one? Midat ha-chesed midat The two aspects of Avraham Avinu, which were completely unique and extraordinarily special, were the fact that he was the kindest person, most loving person, and also he was a man of incredible faith. Those were the two important aspects, crucial aspects, of Avraham Avinu's personality. She-Avraham hichnit et kol hasigim ha'elu Ishmael. Oh, sorry, I missed a line. Lakach He needed both a Ishmael who was born from Hagar. He want there was a side of him, yes, a kind side of him, but the kind side that he didn't want Yitzchak to have, the other aspect of kindness within him. And similarly, Shavram ichnisat kol asigim ha'elu b'Yishmael, and he, and he, um, that part of his personality was shared with Yishmael. So it's not to say that Yishmael is not a kind person, but somehow it's an aspect of kindness which he didn't want Yitzchak to have. Al yedei shegirsho me'apanav hifrit et asigim mimidat ha'chesed v'hava. So the the chaff, the unwanted bits was somehow banished when he banished Yishmael. They're now on the outside, and the positive, the pure levels of Ahava and Chesed are completely reserved for Isaac. There's no contamination whatsoever in the Ahava and the Chesed of Yitzchak. That's how Yitzchak achieved his perfection. If you can imagine the this strategy was, it's almost surreal if you think about it, but Yishmael was his child, but he knew that the Yishmael, what Yishmael had inherited from him in terms of personality traits was something that would contaminate Isaac, even though I'm sure Yishmael was a very nice boy. It wasn't about that. I cannot have him alongside Yitzchak because then the whole Yitzchak thing, by the way, it's a crucial moment in human history. This is not some family. He is the only monotheist on the planet. This is the only person in the world who believes in one God, Avraham Avinu. He knows he needs to make sure that he leaves that legacy behind, that Yitzchak is going to retain that legacy and have children who will retain that legacy. He cannot afford for this experiment to go wrong. There's no second chance here. 
So yes, I've got a Yishmael, and Yishmael's a good enough boy, but if he's going to be alongside Isaac, then the whole thing is going to collapse in and of itself, and therefore he banishes him. That's the Ahavan Chesed side. Now we're going to understand why they're idol worshippers, right? So what's the Bnei Keturah? It's another aspect of Abraham's personality. What's that aspect? What is Avraham Avinu? He is of paramount importance in human history as the progenitor of self-generating monotheism. That's who he is. I believe in one God, a creator God who created the entire universe and that he's personally involved in my life and in the life of every individual human being who is sentient and intelligent. That is an important message. That is the message that he is to impart. It's crucial that he imparts it to Yitzchak. And therefore he has B'nai Keturah. Shegam be'emunah yesh b'chinat sigim k'mo emunot felot chodome. Even in the aspect of human personality called faith, there are things which are contaminants. And he quotes here, what's a contaminant in terms of faith? Superstitions. People believe in all kinds of crazy things. They've got the deepest faith in the craziest stuff, right? People go every night to seances and they're looking at tarot cards and they believe. Ask people what they believe in. You'll never believe what they'll tell you they believe in. The craziest stuff that make absolutely no sense. And they've got the profoundest faith in the reality of those things. That's emunot tfelot. It's emunah. And Avram Avinu is the, is the uh, paradigm of faith. He's the ultimate man of faith when the entire world militates against that kind of faith. He is a man of faith, a rock of faith. But he has children who are also going to be rocks of faith but not in that aspect. He had to ensure that he separated the contaminant types of faith from his faith character in a deliberate way so that the type of faith he um, transmitted to Yitzchak would be perfect in every way. Totally pure, without the contamination of any type of outside force. Alken, lakachet keturah, he married keturah. Kedei leholid banim mimena, so he could have children from her. Velatet vahemet kol asigim shel emunah. He bestowed upon them the, the ideas of faith, knowing full well that they wouldn't be the perfect um, ideals of faith that Yitzchak was going to be, even if they understood what faith was. Do you know what they became faithful in? They, be, they, were the, they were the ones who were singing and playing music. They inherited the personality, the character of faith from their father, but it was misdirected at Avodah Zarah. Afterwards, he banished them, he divorced them as it were, he pushed them aside. And in that way, he, he filtered out those aspects of faith which were contaminants so that that the type of faith that he bequeathed to Isaac would be the 
the faith of Aram Abinu, the deep, profound faith of monotheism that Abram Abinu had come up with, Emunah Torah Misigim, totally pure, without any type of contamination whatsoever. And as a result of this, we now understand completely, it's, everything is answered. He never really married her in the sense that he took her to him. She wasn't the perfect partner in terms of a wife. Why? It was never about him. This was a strategy, it was a tactic. He needed to have children with her. There was a purpose to this marriage. And maybe she knew it. But this wasn't a partnership of equals. I'm marrying you so that I can allow them to take that part of my personality, which I know is important, but I cannot allow Yitzchak to have. Now we understand why she's called both wife and Pilegesh. Because in terms of getting married, yes, he married her as a wife. But the actual fact of it was that he married her um, as a wife, but in order so she should be not quite at that level of the status of a wife, but more like a concubine. So now we, the, uh, we're going to address that one issue which I mentioned earlier on, which is why, is why does this exist and what's the dynamic of it, of things which are good, but not really good. Do you know that the world was created, that in every matter, there's not, no perfection. The physical world, by its very nature, is not perfect. What is perfection? Perfection is spirituality. Like we say, a malach, an angel cannot do a sin. Why? Because it's completely spiritual. It has to follow the word of God. What enables, what enables a human being to be um, a, a rebel against God? Because we're, we're physical. We have that side which is somehow separate from God. How God created it, that's a whole Kabbalistic idea that we're not going to discuss today. So there's no such thing as perfection in the world. You have to struggle for perfection, and even things which are wonderful are not perfect. That's the, just, just the dynamic. It's the, as it were, the fabric of a physical world. Because it cannot be perfect, because it can never reach that highest level of perfection that is God himself, that is heaven, that is spirituality. And even though we know that faith has to be perfect and it can't be contaminated, and that's why he needed the children of Keturah in order to filter out these aspects of impurity that um, would contaminate Yitzchak. How do we explain it? How do we understand it? In all of these characteristics, these personality traits, these human aspects of kindness, of love, of faith, was perfect in these, and, and the, to the extent a human being can be. There are aspects of those personality traits, whether it be love, whether it be kindness, whether it be faith, which are somehow um, mistakes, which are wrong, 
which don't make sense. Sha'af shahamidan tula misigim aval chaser bashlemut. There's something not quite right about them, that you can get them wrong. Listen to this, it's fascinating. And they can even not just be slightly contaminated, but in fact, completely evil. Can you imagine that? Good that can be evil? Kindness can be without perfection. I'm going to say this, I'm not going to read the Hebrew inside. He says, it says, You must honor your parents, you must respect your parents, and you must observe my Shabbat. And all the commentary asks, well, what's one with the other? So the answer is very simple. Honoring your parents, unless it comes from an understanding that your parents are delivering to you something from God. The fact that they're your parents is not because this is some biological accident, but because they have something to impart to you, which, whether it's Bina or Chachma, whatever it is, something that you're getting from them, that power which God delivered to you through them. And therefore, when you respect your parents, you're not respecting your parents, you're respecting God. It's a recognition of God's creation of you through two partners called a mother and a father, right? That's what it is. How are we meant to convey that message? The Torah says there's two types of laws. There's laws between human beings and there's laws between uh, human beings and God, right? Do the non-Jews and the nations of the world, people who are not religious, humanists, understand <coughs> that you should respect your elders, your parents? Of course they do. Right? It's part of a society that you understand your parents gave birth to you. You have to have a certain mode of um, respect and reverence for your parents. Has it got anything to do with God? Nothing whatsoever. Is it kind? Is it respectful? Certainly. But it's not God. Ish aviv v'imotiral. You've got to respect your parents. Why? Because if you understand that your parents... Are your parents because God wanted them to be your parents and they have something special to deliver to you? Then you'll understand what it means to keep Shabbat. Otherwise, keeping Shabbat is also going to be a cultural thing. Why do I keep Shabbat? I like children to get filter fish. But it's nothing to do with Shabbat. Shabbat is a day of God. But how can you understand it? The whole thing is, it all correlates. It's all one part of one big system. You can be kind, says the Nativot Shalom, and misdirect your kindness. <laughs> Think of people who uh, love animals and are willing to bomb facilities and kill people potentially because they want to protect um, animals from being experimented on for, by uh, um, pharmaceutical companies. You can take kindness to such a far degree that the sigim, the contaminants, will actually overwhelm the goodness within it. Of course there's good in the world, but good can turn into evil. You can become so good that you become evil with that good. Your goodness is turned into something negative. You can be so faithful that you believe in complete nonsense. You can be somebody who's a singer for Avodazara or somebody who plays an instrument for Avodazara. You're a man of deep faith, I believe in God. But I also believe in Avodazara. Faith can, can be 
warped to such a degree that you can have somebody who tells you, I believe in Allah, and blow himself up in a restaurant and kill 20 people. Is he a person of faith? How can you deny it? Of course he's a person of faith. Where's his faith? How's it expressed? In murder and mayhem and destruction. That is what Avraham Avinu did not want Yitzchak to have. He wanted the Ahava of Yitzchak and the Chesed of Yitzchak that he gave over to him and the Emunah that he delivered to him as his father to be the type of perfect faith and love and kindness that would be without any of the contaminants of those other children. And that is why, from a Kabbalistic perspective, it was important for him to marry Hagar and have Yishmael, and important for him to marry Keturah and have those other children. We'll leave it here.